Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 23rd, 2016, and my guest is author and journalist Jason Zweig of The Wall Street Journal. His latest book is The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Jason, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be with you, Russ. I'm a big fan of Ambrose Bierce. Uh, his book is The Devil's Dictionary, and you have written a um, – it's really an, an homage to Bierce, I would say. Is that a good way to describe it? I was trying to channel him. I'm, I make no pretense of being either as cynical or as good a writer as he was, but I certainly was trying to, to uh, write it in his spirit. And we're going to get to your book in a minute. Before we do, I do want to let listeners know that Ambrose Bierce was uh, an amazingly uh, entertaining and clever uh, fellow. Uh, 19th century, right? Mostly yeah, he was time. an almost exact contemporary of Mark Twain. Yeah. He was born, I think, in 1842 or 1847, and he is believed to have died in 1914, although, as you know, Ross, nobody's quite sure about that. Well, I appreciate the assumption that I know. Uh, I just, bef- bef- before we talk about it, I, I want to quote Bierce a couple of times to give people the flavor of Bierce. Uh, he's not, I don't think, uh, well-known or certainly as well-known as he should be. Uh, and I, I encourage readers, listeners to get to check out his book as well as Jason's. But he just find his, his book, A Devil's Dictionary, is um, a set of definitions of, of common terms. So here's his definition of politics. A strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. The conduct of public affairs for private advantage. I think that's very deep and true. He also defines egotist as a, I love this, uh, a person of low taste, more interested in himself than me. So yes. what what you have done in your book is taken that spirit and turned it toward the financial sector with great success. And we'll get to that eventually, but I first want to interview and ask you, you, ask you some questions about uh, financial journalism and, and Wall Street generally, and then we'll turn to the book. Uh, you've been a journalist writing about finance for a long time. Yeah, it's coming up on 30 years now. And, have, and in, in human you, years, that's really yeah, a long time. Where have you, where have you worked? Uh, well, I, I did a brief stint at, at Time Magazine in the mid-1980s. Then I was at Forbes Magazine for about a decade. Um, then I, uh, I went back to Time Inc. in the in the late 80s and 90s, uh, I worked mainly at Money Magazine and did some things for Fortune and Time as well. And then uh, since 2008, I've been at the Wall Street Journal. So what would you say your philosophy of, of financial journalism is? Uh, uh, at one point in a recent article, you, you note that uh, there is a repetitive aspect of when you write about personal finance. Uh, what is that aspect? And uh What's your philosophy of how to deal with that? Yeah, well, I'll tell a quick anecdote, Russ. Uh, some some years ago, many years ago, in fact, it was probably in the late 90s, I was at a uh, financial journalism conference, and 
a question came from the floor. I was on a panel discussion and the questioner asked each of the panelists, don't tell us what it says on your resume. Don't tell us what it says on your business card. What do you do for a living? <laughs> in I think I think the person said in 30 words or less. And I think there were four other people on the panel. And 20 minutes later, I finally got the <laughs> chance to give my answer. So I did have some time to think about it. Um, uh, aside from the fact that none of the other panelists had honored the uh, yeah. 50 words or less. Um, stricture, but, um, and what I said was, uh, it's my job to repeat myself 50 to a hundred times a year so that neither my editors nor my readers will notice I'm doing it. And there's a reason for that. I mean, I'm in the advice business. Um, I am much more so than I'm in the news business, although obviously I do both. And, um, there've been any number of times I've been fortunate enough to, you know, break news in my columns, and that's very exciting when I'm able to do it. But for the most part, I'm, I give people in advice about what to do with their portfolios. And, you know, for people who are saving for retirement or to put their kids through college, the real test is, um, you know, can you provide sensible advice that simply improves the probability that people can meet their financial goals. And if that's what you're trying to do, there just are not that many um, novel, innovative things you can tell people that are good for them. Almost every um, exciting new investment idea sooner or later will turn out to be bad for people. So, you know, really all I'm trying to do is answer the question, is this tactic, approach, product, strategy, fund, um, trading technique, good or bad for the people who will use it? I'm not trying to answer the question of whether it's good for Wall Street or the financial industry. I'm just trying to ask whether investors themselves can benefit from it. And sometimes the answer is yes, and that's great. But quite a few times the answer is no, and then people need to hear that. I always find it interesting when people say uh, about a book or a column, oh, there's nothing new there. Well, it's hard to have anything new uh, in general. And to have something new that's true is even harder. And most of the things that are old we've forgotten or haven't absorbed. So I always, I really liked your point about the 50 to 100 times without people noticing because most of the simplest lessons of investing, don't put all your eggs in one basket being one of them, uh, just as take an example, uh, is a really good idea. Uh, or uh, if, if it sounds like a sure thing, it probably isn't. Or as I think you note in your book, it isn't. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a deep truth that's just remarkably difficult to remember, and it's good to hear it 50 to 100 times a year. Uh, so I think uh, you provide a very uh, a valuable service. I'm curious how you think your profession has changed, if at all, over that 30-year period. Do you feel it's um, uh, gotten more sophisticated, less sophisticated? What has changed in, in your business uh, that, that you've noticed, if anything? Well, yeah, certainly, the, I mean, the most obvious change, and no one needs me to tell tell them this, is that the pace has accelerated. I mean, uh, are investors better informed today than they were 30 years ago? 
I don't know. They're certainly more rapidly informed. I mean, you know, I think back, Russ, to when um, my dad, who was a fairly typical individual investor of that era, in the mid-1970s, I think about what it meant for him to uh, to be an investor. I mean, he, we, as as I mentioned to you before we started, I grew up on a farm in northern New York State, um, and my dad was, uh, he was, I guess, too cheap to spring for the Wall Street Journal. Um, our local paper, the Albany Times Union, as I remember, um, had very minimal stock tables. And then once a week, uh, on Saturday, I think Barron's would arrive. My dad did subscribe to that for a while. And so in those days, if you bought or owned a stock, you could easily go almost a week without knowing what the price was. Um, you could call your broker, but for our younger uh, listeners, I have to remind people that there was something called a long distance phone call, mm -hmm. which was very expensive. Plus, uh, in our area, we were on a party line, <laughs> which meant that when you picked up the phone, anyone else nearby who was on the phone the same time as you could hear your conversation. So, um, these are concepts that people under the age of 30 or 40 are completely unfamiliar with. But well, some, in of those are, days, some of those people are probably thinking, why didn't you just look it up on the Internet? But they didn't have yeah, the Internet in the 70s, I don't think, did they? That it did not exist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in those days, it was very cumbersome to know how your investments were performing. And everything was on a multi-day delay. Now, we could ask the question, very interesting question, I think, did that make investors worse off or might it have made them better off? Um, certainly my dad, my dad never traded. Um, you know, eventually he would decide it was the time to sell a stock, but he never, uh, he never would do that on any horizon less than, I don't know, a year or two or three. And he never did it in response to news. It was always in response to what he perceived as the fundamental health of the underlying business. Um, and so that's a remarkable thing, right? That that change in speed and information. But the other thing that you know that I think of when I think over that time span, the, the two things that that strike me that have changed are the is what I would what I think of as the democratization of finance, the ability of everyday people to invest money. And the availability of instruments like index funds, uh, which uh, I think those those would be the two things I would pick. Do you think those are important? Uh, am I exaggerating? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, you know. I think we will look back with the judgment of history and and the luxury of hindsight decades from now, and I think we will come to regard the invention of the index fund as one of the greatest uh, innovations in financial history. You know, I, I, one point I often like to make is in, investors hear a lot about the concept of total return, which is not just the increase or decrease in the value of your investment from the change in its price, but also gives effect for the value of the dividends or the interest income 
that you might reinvest back into the asset. Along, and, with, along with taxes and commission, which are two things yeah, investors it, often exactly. forget. Correct. But if you think about the often cited uh, numbers that the U.S. stock market has returned more or less 9% a year on average uh, since 1926, or some people even take it back uh, centuries earlier, that number assumes that you had taken the dividends that stocks generated and reinvested them. And what no one ever points out is until 1975 or 76, when the Vanguard funds introduced the S&P 500 index fund that went on to become many years later, one of the largest mutual funds in the world. Until that time, no one, individual or institution alike, was earning that total return. It was completely hypothetical because the, the ability to take those dividends and then reinvest them across 500 different stocks in perfect proportion was completely impractical, um, not to mention incredibly expensive. And today you can, yeah. you can do it for almost nothing. Yeah, the transaction so the, costs of, of entering the stock market with small amounts was just out of, was out of the question, yeah. It's a great point. Um, is that has changed? You know, it changed a lot. Some people would say, you know, maybe for the, as you said, there are a lot of changes people debate about whether for the better or for the worse. Uh, but I'd say that one's probably for the better. Um, the incremental. Yeah, I would. I would agree. I think. I think the 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 democratization and the instantaneous nature of information is very unhealthy. I think it's really bad for investors to have the ability to get get sort of momentary, you know, momentary updates on every single asset they own. That's not a good thing. Um, certainly, if any of us knew at you know one forty three in the afternoon that the value of our home had just changed from what it was worth at one forty two in the afternoon we would start to get crazy about whether we should still live in our house or should we sell it? Should we buy a new one? What's wrong with my neighborhood? Um, if you think about it in that perspective, the idea that being constantly updated on your portfolio holdings, it's just a terrible idea. However, the ability to, to participate in the financial markets at, at, Virtually zero cost is an incredibly powerful um, boost to capitalism. And certainly, if you look back in the 19th century or earlier, the proportion of the of the public investing in the stock or bond markets compared with today, uh, people have a much greater stake in the American and the global economy than they ever used to before. And that just can't possibly be a bad thing. And if they follow your advice, of course, they'll be much more successful. Because, uh, you know, one of the challenges of that democratization is the, incent the um, incentive to follow those minute-by-minute, second-by-second news blasts with uh, news bursts with changes in your portfolio, which is really a bad mistake, is one of my favorite definitions in your book is the definition of day trader. And your definition is one word, idiot. 
and there is a challenge. And if you look up idiot in the book, it says day trader. It's a beautiful symmetry there. <laughs> um, but there is this temptation to moment by moment uh, adjust your portfolio. I certainly, uh, I look at mine about uh, twice a year uh, and I sleep well at night. I encourage uh, choosing a philosophy that lets you do that, even if it's not the best philosophy, because you will be a happier person. Uh, I want to turn to uh, your work with uh, Daniel Kahneman. It says in the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman's work, my thanks go first to Jason Zweig, who urged me into the project and patiently tried to work with me until it became clear to both of us that I am impossible to work with. Um, I, that's very nice, uh, sort of. So what, what happened there? Uh, well, what was your role in the project and uh, what happened? I think I think Danny was being um, was being his usual self-deprecating self there, um, and maybe uh, having a little fun at his own expense. Um, yeah, I uh, I spent um, pretty much all of 2007 and 2008 um, working with him on the book, uh, helping him research it, write it, edit it. Um, it was. Um, I would say those were two of the um, greatest um, learning years I've ever spent. It was a, an amazing opportunity to learn at the feet of, you know, one of the greatest um, observers of the human mind I think uh, the modern world has seen. And um, we... Uh, uh, we had a lot of fun. Um, it was a ton of work. Uh, and uh, Danny sets very, very high standards, especially for himself, which is what he's really talking about there. And um, and eventually, uh, uh, we both decided that maybe, uh, maybe getting a full-time job uh, might be a little more reassuring to me. So um, when the Wall Street Journal got in touch with me, uh, that's uh, that's when I sort of moved on from the book project. But but um, it, it was it was a terrific experience, and um, we have uh, we definitely have remained friends, which is terrific. Is that a? Um, I mean, that's an unusual attitude for someone who was part of a project that didn't work out. It was a successful project, obviously. Um, regret, or are you making lemonade out of the lemons? Or is, I mean, I love that you thought it was great two years, even though it didn't pan out exactly. Well, you know, uh, one of the most fascinating things I learned out of working with Danny was that um, he really meant it when he said, because he and I have known each other for a long time, 20 years, I think, at this point. And um, many times over the earlier years, he had sort of warned me that um, people who study psychology and the pitfalls of the human mind are no less prone to making errors of judgment and cognition than people who don't know anything about it. And it's alarming. Um, I, I, I remember very clearly the first day we started working on, on the project, Danny said, 
above all else, I do not want to commit the planning fallacy. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Russ, for, our, for some people in our audience. I'll, I'll just briefly summarize it. The planning fallacy is the, is the shortcoming in human judgment that so many of us fall into when we're facing a big project. Um, we estimate how long it'll take and how hard it'll be to do based on our own experience and also how we feel about the project rather than doing what we should do, which is consult a ready-made database that's already available to us, which is ask the question of all the people who've faced a similar commitment, how long did it take them and uh, what was their experience? And then you would take the average of that and that would be your baseline expectation. And so think about um, when you renovated your kitchen, for example. Yeah. Your, your contractor renovates kitchens all the time. Your contractor looked at your kitchen and said, well, I think it'll cost, I mean, you know the number. You might not want to say it. I'm guessing it was some 35000 let's, let's call it X thousand. X thousand. Or X could be 35. And Right, and it'll take Y months to finish. And, of course, when it was done, it cost you, I'm guessing, 2X, and it probably took 2Y units of time to complete. And um, so Danny, of course, is very aware of all this. He's the person who first documented the planning fallacy, and he said, let's make sure we don't commit the planning fallacy. So we went through this scenario planning exercise that involved making a realistic estimate of how many words will be in the final book, how many words a day can we realistically produce based on what other people committing to similar projects have done, and also what's the probability that we might never finish. And um, so this was a really detailed exercise. It took us quite some time. And when we were finished, uh, I think we... I think we concluded that it was doable in three years at the worst. And so that would have been April 2007, I think. And I believe the book came out five years later. Um, but that was after several times when Danny almost quit entirely. <laughs> so... I mean, it's uh, he he and I together uh, committed the very fallacy that we were trying so hard to avoid. And to his credit, he said, we may, we still may be committing it when we were done with the conversation. And he was right. Well, I think uh, in his book on writing, uh, Stephen King talks about his strategy for writing a book, which or just I think living, which is that he would get up every day and he would write. X thousand words, and X thousand, I think is, I can't remember, but it's a frighteningly large number for him. It's at least 10, um, I, you know, which is 25 pages, basically. I mean, just 40 pages. Yeah. But I can't remember exactly what the number is. But it's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of number that for most of us, that's some, a number you might have done once or twice in your life. And it's yeah. one of the most exhilarating days of your life. You realize you're on an incredible roll. But he would do it every day. And, um, and when I um, 
we put the transcript up. I'll, I'll, uh, the highlights, I'll put in brackets what the actual number is. I'll look it up in the meanwhile. But he would do that and he would be done usually by noon. And after that, he had, after he'd hit his mark, he would then spend the rest of the day shopping or relaxing, whatever he did. He did that every day. And so he actually could plan how long it would take him to write one of his, quote, normal books. And when he wrote a book that was a little bit different outside the ordinary, maybe it was a little bit harder for him to plan. But And as he got older, I think it took him to like 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock mm-hmm. to hit his mark. But uh, he's unusual. Most of us uh, suffer from being unable to predict with any accuracy how long projects are going to take. Yeah, I would um, say he's extraordinarily yeah, unusual. No, he is. Yeah, he's uh, way out in the right-hand tail, maybe by himself. Um, yes. Now, a more serious uh, question about th- that book and, and about behavioral economics generally, which is a theme that runs through your book, um, The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Uh, you make fun of economists. I do too. It's okay. Uh, but but you're, you're prone to point out in the book many of the pitfalls that investors have due to their their biases and, and the challenges they face in assessing the world accurately. Uh, some of those findings have, have come into question because some of the, I think some of the experimental work is, is, there's been struggles to replicate it accurately or to replicate it at all. And if you followed that literature, if you thought about those issues? Um, yes. Um, you know, there's, uh, I'm quite familiar with the controversy in social psychology, particularly with, a bunch of the priming experiments in which people are given subtle, unconscious reminders of various environmental factors or other other um, decision variables. And a lot of those experiments are not replicating um, or are only partly replicating. And now, uh, of course, predictably, there's a pushback yep. against the replications. The, <laughs> yeah, against, against the failure to replicate. And the controversy hasn't really settled out. Um, but I think, uh, I think where I come out on this, Russ, is that um, oh, while a lot of the experiments in social psychology that involve those unconscious variables that are usually tested with priming experiments... The bulk of the research in behavioral economics and cognitive psychology, I don't think is quite that fragile. Um, Things like the anchoring experiments that Danny Kahneman did in the 70s with his research partner, Amos Tversky, um, uh, where simply putting people in mind of any number, no matter how irrelevant, tends to shape their judgment of the next number they're being asked to measure, I don't think those results uh, go away when you try to replicate them. I think they're strong. And I think a lot of the basic findings in behavioral economics, for example, that people are overconfident about um, their judgments or their evidence, uh, I think a lot of those results hold up because I think they're getting at basic aspects of human nature, what it means to be human. And um, yeah, I agree with I don't, that. Yeah, I don't I, think those things depend on sort of who's running the lab or um, whether 
somebody, you know, unfairly manipulated the software. It's the software we're born with that's really determining the results, not the software that's measuring the experiment. Yeah, I have to agree, agree with most of that. And I, <clears throat> I think the only question is you know, the point that Vernon Smith made on this program a few years back, and we'll put a link up to that episode where he talks about the power of markets and market information to constrain those kinds of mistakes that we're, we have a tendency to make. And I say that as someone uh, who is, uh, I think I have tickets to Hamilton. Uh, I, th- I say I think because Ticketmaster uh, isn't showing them on my, uh, on my page. There's some uncertainty about this, but assuming that I have those tickets, I paid, uh, I paid about $180 for them to take my family to New York and see the show. The, the the market price for those tickets is about a thousand dollars per ticket, and so I'm having a conversation with my family just because it's interesting and they're interested in it uh, about the fact that it's going to cost us about a thousand dollars a piece to go. Um, but if had, had the tickets been a thousand dollars, we wouldn't have purchased them. We would have waited until right. they came down. And I think the challenge is is. Not to say, well, that's irrational. The challenge is to say, and we're going to go. I'm pretty sure, assuming Ticketmaster comes through and we find my tickets, but uh, we're not going to sell them on the street. And I, that includes my uh, middle son who who um, raised the question. He's the biggest fan of the show. He raised the question whether he would be allowed to sell his ticket personally uh, and pocket the difference. And, and we said no. But But I think the challenge is, Rather than just saying, well, that's irrational to, to go when it costs you a thousand, but you wouldn't go if you had to pay a thousand out of pocket. The challenge is, you know, what is going on there? And I think that's where the most interesting aspects of these puzzles come in. Is it the fact that I have, we as a family have been talking about it? We bought them back in September, which is why they were only $180. Right. Um, is that, is it the anticipation that makes it hard to sell them and give up that expected treat? Is it, or is it something else? Is it just uh, something hardwired that I've, that I've got to deal with? So I think that's what where the future of this kind of work comes for is going to be um, is going to be going. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, and by the way, you'll love the show. Not that you need me to tell you that, but is it uh, good? <laughs> it's it's phenomenal. That's what it's they phenomenal. say. That's what they say. Yeah, yeah. It's just it it's beyond description. It's it's so great, um, but. You know, I, I uh, if there were one word I could banish from the vocabulary of behavioral economics, it would be irrational. I just, I can't tell you how much I hate that term. Um, and I think there's two reasons I hate it. One is so often it is used as, um, as sort of a um, secret password um, like a, a shibboleth, to use the ancient Hebrew term, sort of, you know the secret handshake, so you're rational. <laughs> but all those other people, the they're not—they're not on the inside. Yeah. They're just irrational. There's a real sort of divide between the so-called smart money and everybody else. And the idea is, well, we're rational, but they're all crazy. And in fact, most of the people calling other investors irrational are committing the same, you know, uh, imperfections of human reasoning that the people they criticize are. The second reason I don't like it 
is because I, I'm not sure the term has much meaning. You know, investors aren't rational or irrational. They're just human. And I think it's human when something you paid $180 for becomes worth $1,000 to start asking yourself a different set of questions. I mean, maybe we should pocket the difference. It's a lot of money. There are times I would have in my life. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, there's, there's a lot we could do with the $820 profit, pre-tax profit, that um, we might not be able to do otherwise. And that's true even in, a, in an upper middle class household like yours. And, um, you know, the consumption value of a night at, you know, one of the greatest musicals in, you know, modern America is huge, but dollars is also, <laughs> if you spend it wisely, can, I mean, there's a lot of optionality in that. That's, you can, you could certainly spend it on something else that might give you at least as much pleasure. And um, also you're playing with the house money, which changes the dynamic as well, because yeah, that $820, that's yours to play with. Yeah, I don't like to remind my wife or kids of this, but... Uh, you know, the show's going to be around for a very long time. Uh, I yeah. have a feeling you'll be able to see it in 10 years. And although in seeing it in a year or two is still going to be very expensive. In 10 years, it'll probably be cheap. It'll be revived after it goes away. Yeah. The, the only, but the question is, or this is the part I don't remind my kids and wife about, which is uh, uh, they might need to revive me to see it. So one of the reasons <laughs> I want to see it now at that expensive opportunity cost is that I might not be here to see it another time. And of course you could say, well, then you won't bother. You won't be here. But anyway, uh, it's, uh, let's leave that philosophical question behind. Um, I want to turn to, uh, let's, let's turn to the book, um, which is a lovely and charming book. Uh, but one could argue it's, it's a little too cynical. Uh, Beers could be painted as a, as a cynic and you writing in his spirit, uh, could be, uh, doing the same thing. Um, a theme that runs through your definitions in this dictionary, and just for listeners, it's it's a glossary. That's what the Devil's Dictionary was by Ambrose Bierce, and the Devil's Financial Dictionary by you is a glossary of terms with uh, humorous and uh, but but pointed, witty, and sometimes a bit cynical in their tone definitions. So um, one of the themes that runs through your definitions is that. We are often exploited by Wall Street as as individual investors. Do you really feel that way as strongly as it comes through in the book? Um, or are you just being a little beersy in there? Well, um, yes, I I, I, I do. Um, I think it, I think it's fairly easy for people to avoid being exploited. You, but you must be an intelligent consumer of information and you have to control the relationship that you have with um, Wall Street and the financial industry. But um, there's, I don't think there's any question that the people on the other side of the trade from you are trying to take advantage of you if you let them, because that's the main reason they want to trade with you in the first place. They, they believe 
that if you're selling, they'll make more money buying, or if you're buying, they'll make more money selling. And um, often they know more than you do. And um, often when you think you know more than they do, you're wrong. <laughs> so those are all things worth bearing in yeah, mind. No, those are all good. But I, I would say that, that the most of the cynicism in the book comes from the people who are facilitating that trade or who are suggesting that you make that trade or who are advising you about how to think about making that trade. Uh, the people who provide you know, financial information, the brokers, the dealers, the, the banks, et cetera, um, on the commissions they charge, on the advice they give, and uh, the products that they market. So you want to defend or, or criticize them as well? Or, or what do you feel about that? Well, look, there, I mean, the, uh, the entire industry of financial intermediation is really based on this idea that people cannot help themselves. They cannot get their fair share of what the financial markets will return without someone um, helping them and charging hefty fees in return. And of course, what we're, see what we're seeing throughout the economy, Russ, in you know, uh, companies like Uber or Airbnb or uh, any number of other examples we, we could name is um, this sort of blunt, um, sort of almost destructive disintermediation where people are going directly to the source of the service or the good and um, eliminating or at least um, reducing the take of the middleman. And as, you know, as we discussed earlier with, uh, with an investment like an index fund or an ETF, which is just a variant of it, you know, in many cases you can buy the entire stock market or the entire bond market, pay no commission of any kind and pay an annual management fee of just, you know, a, a fraction of a percentage point per year. And the idea that you need to pay somebody, you know, three to 5% up front and then one to 2% annually in perpetuity just for putting you into something like that in the first place, I don't think that's a sustainable idea in 2016. I think that uh, that's a way of life that will continue to shrink. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you define irrational as a word you use to describe any investor other than yourself. And I, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine is a lawyer who uh, said that while he was a good investor, of course, and well-informed, his secretary couldn't be expected to invest her own money. And that was his way of making a case for Social Security, that if we had private retirement accounts, people would make all kinds of mistakes. Of course, I would probably look at his investment decisions with disdain. I think there are increasingly vehicles uh, to make good investment decisions easier if you are, as you say, wise enough to control your impulses for a, say, a larger return. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer uh, that the single greatest asset any investor can have is self-control. You know, it took me 
probably about 30 years of writing about financial markets to realize that if you had to distill investing success down into one single principle, that would be it. I mean, as, as Benjamin Graham wrote in The Intelligent Investor, the investor's um, uh, biggest obstacle is likely to be himself. And uh, actually he said the investor's biggest obstacle and worst enemy <laughs> is likely to be himself. And it's, it's so true because you can have uh, you can have well-informed principles. You can do thorough research. You can have access to the best quality information. And then, you know, you get some, you know, tip at your country club that, uh, you know, uh, Tesla shares are cheap and you run out and put all your money in Tesla right before it tumbles. And um, you let go of your self-control for that one moment, and that moment of weakness is what um, takes you from outperformance to underperformance. And self-control is is what has made Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, uh, and certainly what made Benjamin Graham into great investors. But most investors spend all their time and energy sort of pursuing other uh, objectives like getting the fastest information first or finding the best software or using some new analytical method that nobody else had thought of. And none of those things will get you where you need to go if you do not have self-control. I don't know if I've told this story before on the air, but I'm not sure I have. Um, uh, George Stigler, Nobel laureate at the University of Chicago, reportedly um, told the story of a lunch where he and some other faculty members were sitting around and they realized there was an arbitrage opportunity. I think it was wheat uh, between the United States and uh, England. And they executed a trade, uh, not realizing that the definition of a ton in England, <laughs> it's not the same as the definition of a ton in the United States. And uh -huh. Stigler, after mentioning that, would say, that was one of the most expensive lunches I ever had. <laughs> and um, here's, here's a man whose, I would say in many ways, his life was devoted, as was his good friend Milton Friedman's, to understanding there's no free lunch. Um, a person who would happily tell the story of the $20 bill on the ground and the person going to pick it up and being told uh, if it were real, don't bother picking it up because if it were really there, someone would have picked it up already. Yeah. And yet at this lunch, this group of extremely bright people convinced themselves that they were going to be de fabulously wealthy. That's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, it's depressing, but um, it's good to remember because we all have those moments and it's, um, it's very useful to find uh, heuristics for remembering heuristics, I think. Um, it's an yeah. un unappreciated area. Uh, I want to read a, a definition. I'll try to read a few of them. Um, this is the definition of bright line in your book. Bright line, adjective and noun, a line dividing ethical from unethical behavior that is often blurred until dull. The simplest bright line rule or bright line test answers the question, would my mother be proud of me if she knew I was doing this? On Wall Street, the voice of mom may be the least audible to those who most urgently need to listen to her. 
The financial industry would harbor much less darkness if every action had to pass mom's bright line test. Uh, I really like that. Um, I'm, it reminded me of a little bit of Adam Smith's impartial spectator and how he, Smith notes that in the heat of the moment, the spectator is very hard to hear um, yeah. when you're doing something unethical that you really want to do. I want to, I want to take, take it in a more serious direction. Do you think Wall Street got off too easily uh, in this last crisis in its failure to act ethically and did too many things that mom would have uh, be ashamed of? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, I think the thing where I've started to come out on it is that what society, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking of American society in particular because I'm just less familiar with Europe and Asia, what society really missed out on in this financial crisis that I think we had as a nation after the crash of 29 was we didn't have any public hangings. And I'm, I'm using the term metaphorically, obviously nobody was hanged after, nobody was hanged for financial crimes at least after the crash of 1929. But there was a, an enormous amount of ritual humiliation for the leaders of the financial industry who, who effectively drove the nation into the crash of 1929 and to some extent into the Great Depression. Um, uh, and some people did do prison time, for example, Richard Whitney, who had been president of the New York Stock Exchange. But the senior executives of the largest banks in the country, and in those days most of them were financial, or, or sorry, were commercial banks, uh, like... Uh, uh, Chase, the ancestors of Chase Manhattan and Citibank. Um, you know, they testified before Congress at the Pecora Commission, and Ferdinand Pecora was certainly one of the toughest prosecutors uh, in U.S. history and just a ferocious interrogator. And most of these people were absolutely humiliated. And a lot of the practices that were exposed really were damaging to the public confidence and arguably to the integrity of markets and the financial legislation that was passed primarily uh, beginning in 1933 was really a response to all of that testimony. And after the uh, financial crisis of 2008-2009, we got, you know, the Dodd-Frank Act, which is, you know, thousands of pages of sort of microscopic regulation of everything under the sun and commissioning of all kinds of studies and the like. Um, and we got some testimony before Congress and the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, but we didn't really get the level of public apology and humiliation that the financial industry had to go through in the late 20s and early 30s. And I think that's unfortunate. It, the public would have benefited from it and the industry would have benefited from it. And um, that kind of catharsis is something we did not go through and I think probably should have. Yeah, I think it's shocking how little we learned from it. Uh, you can debate about what we should have learned and people don't agree on it, you know, politically, ideologically, people on the left and the right 
draw different lessons. But I, what I've noticed is that no matter which lesson you draw, we're still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, if it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. If you think it was a government problem or, or a private problem, none of the um, obvious uh, lessons led to uh, right or wrong, led to changes that, that they should have. And I've, I agree with you. I think it's a, I think, actually think it's a tragedy. Um, uh, let me turn to your uh, definition of central bank, which I really enjoyed. A group of economists who believe that their current forecasts will turn out to be accurate, even though their past forecasts have been unreliable, that their present policies will succeed, even though their past policies have failed, that they can prevent inflation from occurring next time, even though they didn't prevent it last time, that they can foster lower unemployment in the future, even though their practices worsened it in the past, and so forth. You should now be able to answer the, this riddle. What's the difference between a central banker and a weather vane? They both turn in the wind, but only the central banker thinks he or she determines which way the wind blows. Uh, are you really that cynical, and do we pay too much attention to the pronouncements of uh, central bankers? Um, well, so that's two questions. The answer to the first is, yes, I really am that cynical. Uh, and the answer to the second question is, I think I think um, the there is a lot of intellectual honesty within central banks, but it doesn't always get reflected in the formation of policy. You know, if you ask anyone who works at the Fed, you know, how accurate have your past forecasts been? I mean, most people will say, you know, somewhere around the flip of a coin, maybe a little better, um, uh, with an emphasis, I think, on maybe a little better. But I think they're aware of the limitations of their ability to predict the future. And certainly the history of Fed policy shows um, not only does the Fed not know what the economy will really do in advance, but the Fed doesn't even know what the Fed will do in advance. Um, so often, um, the Open Markets Committee will make a, make a, a periodic statement at, a, at its regular meeting saying, you know, for the foreseeable future, we believe, uh, you know, that policy should re remain accommodative, which basically means we're, we're going to be easing and we're going to be using an easy monetary policy. And then three weeks later, they raise interest rates because new data become available. And that's really the, the historical pattern you see. So, I mean, I think, you know, if there's one overriding theme to the book, one of the things I tried to get across in the Devil's Financial Dictionary is the importance of just being humble before the financial markets. I mean, people are humble before nature. I mean, think about, you know, when you stand on the brim of the Grand Canyon or um, you walk to the edge of the ocean or you look up at the stars. I mean, people feel this sense of awe and wonder and smallness because we are small when we compare ourselves with the natural world. Well, Individuals, and for that matter, policymakers are small when we compare ourselves with 
the financial markets. But most of us forget that. And we think, oh, you know, well, we have better data or we know something the other guy doesn't. And in fact, we should have that same sense of, you know, just being a, a speck of sand on a long beach and just remember that whatever we know is very small compared to the totality of the information that's out there. And central bankers, I think, um, could do a little better job on keeping that kind of humility in mind. Well, you're, my listeners know how much I like humility. Uh, I'm uh, One of my pet peeves is the encouragement of the teaching of personal finance to um, high school students and children, which is in the abstract a fine idea but is often bizarrely uh, in practice taught by, say, giving kids a fixed amount of money and having a contest to see who can make the most money over three months, which has to be you know, a stock market contest, an investing contest, which has to be probably the worst single lesson you could teach anybody about, I think, about investing, which is, you know, encourage people to have a short, a, a short-term horizon, uh, encourage people to strategize by taking as much risk as possible because that's the way you win. Uh, it's your best shot in a large contest. Uh, losers get zero in this game. It's a winner-take-all, which is nothing like the actual stock market. Uh, so it's it's a horrific set of uh, lessons. And it strikes me that we would be much better off teaching humility and self-control, which, of course, are hard to teach. That's another problem. It's a lot easier to run a stock market contest, I guess. But um, other than reading your column 50 to 100 times a year, uh, what might we do to encourage um, our own humility and our own self-control uh, given, given those problems? Well, um, first of all, Russ, I mean, I could not agree with you more. I, a couple of years ago, I wrote a column about exactly that, the stock market game. And uh, I think it's really, it, it, it's shocking because so many, uh, so many, educated Americans advocate financial education in the schools. And I think so few realize that uh, the form it often takes is, is essentially teaching impressionable young people uh, to gamble in the financial markets, not to invest, not even to speculate, but to gamble. And I'm, um, uh, the other thing is, um, which is almost never mentioned, is the stock market game allows the kids to use leverage. They're actually borrowing money or trading on margin. Um, and I just, I, I cannot imagine a worse way to teach young people how to be responsible with their money than urging them to gamble with it. And I'm... Um, you know, I think instead of that, we should be we should be emphasizing basic shopkeepers math. You know, if all you if all you can do is apply simple arithmetic to an investment portfolio or to the other decisions in personal finance about banking and borrowing, then um, you would be pretty well served if you just remembered, you know, reading, writing arithmetic or you remembered addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication and really simple principles of accounting, that would be much better than teaching kids to gamble and 
pretending that you're um, giving them some sort of financial training. You know, as to self-control, I mean, I think that has to come from the family and from peers. And I think it's very difficult for young people in a world where everyone carries a supercomputer in in a back pocket um, and communication is instantaneous and gratification feels instantaneous. Very hard to get people to defer a reward into the future and realize that that can be a good thing instead of a bad one. I mean, I have teenagers and I was a teenager and I think we can all sympathize with that problem. Yeah, that's a problem that humanity is going to, human beings are going to struggle with, uh, well, forever. But I think in particular, as you point out today, um, uh, it's it's especially hard. Uh, recently read a column uh, by a rabbi suggesting that you should not check your email until you get to work. That, that seems like a very small thing uh, that you would wait. 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it takes you before from waking up until you get to work to check your email. I suspect very few people could handle that. Um, but it might lead to some serenity and a little more self-control in other parts of your life. I don't know, but it's a I huge, it yeah. it's a huge and challenge. I, <laughs> it, it is. And I, I, I do think though that there's a point well worth making and pondering here, which is, you know, as investors, people should always be asking themselves, what is my basic advantage? What can I bring to this that other people can't? And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of people uh, sort of go on this futile pursuit of better information than, you know, Goldman Sachs has or faster computers than the high-frequency traders who spend millions of dollars a year on computers have. All of those things are just, um, you know, a snare and a delusion. None of those can you possibly, as an individual investor or even most professional investors, you're not going to be able to come up with any comparative advantage in those areas. But if you can defer gratification in a world where information and um, uh, communication are instantaneous. If you can train yourself to show self-control and to defer gratification, you will have an enormous advantage over the long term. Um, because uh, that's one thing that most individual investors and most professional investors find very difficult. And anyone who can muster that kind of patience and serenity, I think will will have an enormous advantage. And I think um, that kind of emotional um, aptitude is something that investors really should try to cultivate. So I have a new challenge for you, Jason. I think having channeled your inner chase your inner uh, ambrose beers i want you to channel your inner rudyard kipling because you just gave a bunch of sentences that started with the phrase if you can and uh, i can't yeah. i think of the kipling poem if which is about the virtues it's written as it was a long time ago from a male perspective but 
It's a pretty universal uh, set of advice. And he doesn't have a lot of financial advice. He has a little bit in there, I think, but uh, should write a, an investment version of that. And uh, we can maybe teach it in schools to get kids to memorize it. Uh, we're almost out of time. I want to close with us, ask you to tell a story that you told in a column that you wrote uh, about three years ago. You were you had written your 250th column for the Wall Street Journal's Intelligent Investor column, and you had won the Gerald Loeb Prize for uh, financial journalism. And in the wake of that, you wrote a column that had a sort of a summary. We'll put a link up to it. Uh, it's a very nice piece. But in there, you tell the story of uh, visiting your father. I'd like you to close with that. Yeah, so my dad was a remarkable man, Russ. He he had grown up on a farm in northern New York State. He was a soldier in World War II, um, political science professor, um, and um, later in life, uh, uh, an art and antique dealer. Um, but he was an incredibly literate man. And um, my senior year of college, uh, he was terminally ill, and I was going to college down in New York City. And and most weekends, I would take the train up to uh, Fort Edward in, in upstate New York, which then was the closest train station. And um, my dad was... was was very sick, but um, so this one particular weekend, um, he asked me, as he always did when I when I got there, um, what have you been reading? And um, I kind of fluffed up my twenty two year old feathers and said, Kierkegaard. And my dad said, Well, what is he telling you? And so I had just read this passage on the train that. I instantly memorized then, and I still remember where Kierkegaard had written, uh, no, no, no man, I think maybe it was no individual, no individual can assist or save the age. He can only express that it is lost. And, you know, as a callow 22 year old, I thought that was so beautiful. And my dad said, um, well, he's right, but that's why you have to try to assist or save the age. And um, it was just, uh, it was a remarkable moment that still kind of gives me chills when I think about it, because my dad was, had studied a lot of philosophy and he knew Kierkegaard very well. And what he was saying is that uh, I'm, it doesn't matter whether um you know, saying or doing the right thing will make a difference. You have to try it anyway, because that's the only way that you as an individual can um, attain any dignity in this world. And, you know, in the advice business, which is what I do, you know, when I was very young, um, I used to like to think, you know, I can... Um, I can I can get so many investors to improve their behavior and make a huge difference in their lives. And as I've grown older, I've really come to appreciate the importance of what my dad said, which is that it, it's not about trying to get everyone to do the right thing. It's just about trying to get anyone <laughs> to do the right thing. And, and even if no one listens, um, you at least know that you did your best as you saw it to um, 
try to make the world a little bit of a better place. And um, whether anybody listens or not, maybe you never really know, but the effort is, um, is sort of all we have. And that's why, you know, that's what makes it worthwhile. My guest today has been Jason Zweig. His book is The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Jason, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.